Uh, if you've got a Bible, you may want to pull it out because I can't guarantee the screen's going to have the scriptures today. So if you've got a smartphone app, you can pull that out. And uh, we're going to be in this. You can start looking for John. Uh, but I want to show you a picture while we do have the screen. This is a guy named Jim Delgatti. Back in the 60s, he had about 18 McDonald's franchises in the Pittsburgh area. And you probably never heard the name, but you've heard Jim Delgatti's contribution to the McDonald's franchise. He's the guy who created the Big Mac. The two, say it with me, two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a... There you go, that's him. April 22nd, 1967, my birthday. I wasn't born yet, but that, that was so... And here's the ironic thing. Nobody but Jim thought it was a good idea. He had to fight tooth and nail with the executives at McDonald's just to serve it in his own franchises. He was right, obviously. A year later, the Big Mac had proved to be so successful, it was being served in every McDonald's across the United States. By 1969, two years after he introduced it and fought tooth and nail to get it introduced, it accounted for 20% of all sales at McDonald's. It was a good idea. And now you look at how McDonald's has grown with the Big Mac. They sell a half a billion Big Macs a year in the United States alone. How many of you have eaten like half of those yourself, right? Across the, there are hundreds of millions more across the whole world. The Big Mac is such a part of culture of the entire world that economists use it to determine the currency valuation for countries. They'll figure out what a Big Mac costs in this country compared to this country next door, and they'll see if the currency is overvalued or undervalued based on the cost of a McDonald's Big Mac cool thing. Jim's contribution even kept going. He loved the Big Mac so much that he created a museum for it. 2007, he created the Big Mac Museum. So if you're looking for a road trip, you can go to North Huntington, Pennsylvania and get your picture taken in front of a 14-foot Big Mac sculpture. Yeah, there it is. You can do that. So if you're looking for a road trip, you're welcome. It's a museum and a restaurant, so you can go eat a Big Mac. Now, with all the money and publicity that Jim has brought to McDonald's, you would think he's a bajillionaire, right? I would. Like, he, this is the guy that made the Big Mac. He's got to be rich and famous. So I'm wondering, what did he get from McDonald's for doing that? A reporter in 2007 at the opening of his museum asked him that question. Like, Jim, what did you get for inventing the Big Mac? What did McDonald's do for you? It, you got a lot of money, right? And he said, no, you know what I got? I got a plaque. Thank you for creating the Big Mac. How's that for a thank you? The struggle is real, people. Which is, you know, we're wrapping this series up and we've been talking about how many things in life and many things in our relationship with God and our faith, or if you're trying to develop faith, it, it can be difficult. There's things that we don't understand. There's things that are troubling. There's things that we have to fight through. And um, so as we think about this and we've studied through it, what we've come to understand, the struggle that we face is on so many levels. It's in our lives and it's in our, you know, our, our faith. It's sometimes in church, which you would think that's not the place you should struggle, but that's sometimes how it is. And so what we've, what we've understood, though, as we study the Bible, and if you missed any of these messages in this series, you can go back and get the podcast. Brian Heinrich had a great message last week. What we understand is there's help available for us even as we struggle. We simply have to humble ourselves and look to God and ask him for help and the help's there. Which then kind of leads to the topic of today. Like, I did ask for help and I didn't get it. What do I do then? You know, because sometimes maybe you've had this experience and if I could put it into the form of a question, it would be, okay, so you say he does, but does God really care about what I'm experiencing? And the reason we ask this is because there have been some experiences in our life where we've kind of come to the conclusion, God apparently doesn't care about me. You know, these things he says about loving the whole world, apparently I'm the exception that proves the rule because I've needed God to come through for me and he didn't. Has that been, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but have you kind of had that experience where like, 
you were desperately praying for something and God did not come through for you, you, maybe you weren't even a person who prays, but in that moment, you were so desperate. I've got to pass this test or we've got to get this relationship worked out or my finances are running on fumes or have you literally been on the interstate on fumes and you're praying, Lord, give me to the next exit. You know, and then for whatever reason, God did not choose to answer your prayer or at least he didn't come through when you needed him to come through. And that's a very difficult thing to take. That is a struggle that a lot of people can relate to. It's like, why, when I needed you to do something, God, did you not do it? Do you not notice me? And I, I don't know about you, but I hate it when I need somebody to be there on time and they're not. Do you hate waiting for people? So the ones of you who did not answer that, you're the one that everybody else waits for, right? And I remember when we, we, were, we were kids, we moved into a new neighborhood and my mom worked it out with another mom of the neighborhood. They were going to swap carpooling, taking us to school. So one week it's this mom and then my mom and back and forth. So first time we're going to go, we pull up in front of their house. Beep, beep, time to go. Nothing. We just sat there, and the kids aren't coming out. They're like, what's going on here? My, I, my family was one of those. If you're, if you're on time, you're already late. kind of. So this is already, like, my mom's like, where are they? And then we're sitting there. We waited, like, 15 minutes in front of the house. Car running. There's no looking through the blinds. There's no waving. Oh, we're coming. We're sorry. So the first day, we're like, okay, maybe we just had a little miscommunication about what time. And then the next day, we go, same thing. We get in front of the house at the time. We're like sitting in the car going, Mom, we're going to be late for school. We're going to get in trouble. We were late yesterday. We can't be late again. Whole week, it was like this. Like, what in the world? Mom, did you talk to their mom about what time we're supposed to leave? They know what time school starts. This lady's like even a teacher. So (laughs) what's going on here? And then Dr. Brene Brown talks about this. She has this concept. She says, the story I'm telling myself. Because when you, you only know a few things, but you don't have the whole story, your mind will fill in all the gaps. So the story we were telling ourselves in the car is, they're looking out the window to see how mad they can make us before they come out. Like, oh, they're furious. Let's go. We actually got this mystery solved. My mom was a nurse and she, her shift got changed. So one day uh, she had to go into work early. So what she said is, you guys are going to go down to their house and wait because I can, you know, it's, it's earlier than normal. So I don't want you to be here at the house by yourself. So we were actually in their house about 30 minutes before it was actually time to leave for school. So it's, we're there, and the girls aren't out. Yeah, but that's okay. It's 15 minutes until it's time to go to school. And the mom and the dad were the only ones out and about moving in the house. And I'm thinking, this is kind of weird. It's getting time. No joke. It was time to leave for school. Like, we've got to leave right now, and we will make the first bell. And the mom goes over and knocks on the girls' doors and says, this is the last warning. You've got to get up. They were not even, like, the story we were telling wasn't even close. They weren't even getting up until we honked the horn to leave for school. That's how bad it was. And we're like, oh my gosh. You ever feel like that with God? Like, I need you to come through now and God's like off doing something else. And the story you're telling yourself is, God doesn't care about me. God is paying attention to somebody else. You know, God's got bigger fish to fry. You know, maybe God doesn't exist. Why is he being so silent? And our minds fill in all these gaps with so many things. And I'm just going to tell you right now, if you are a person who's ever been... um, and you can do this, it's okay. If you've ever been angry with God, disappointed with God, because you didn't think he was moving at the pace he should, if maybe you think he doesn't care as much as he should, you're not the first person to think that. You go uh, and do this. If you're not a person who reads the Bible, you ought to just read the gospel sometime and look how many different times people were disappointed with Jesus because they didn't think he was moving fast enough, that he didn't care enough about what they were going through. 
I want to give you one case in particular. That's what we're going to look at today. If you want to take the Bible that you got open, find John. If you're looking in the table of contents, which is totally appropriate, you're looking for plain John. You're not looking for one, two, or three John, which are at the end of the Bible. Same guy wrote them all, but different place. So you're looking for the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 11. True story. Eyewitness account. John, who wrote this Gospel of John, was actually there, saw all this stuff happen. So he's writing down what he observed and what he saw. And this is a story about people being disappointed with Jesus moving at his own pace. Not coming through in the time they thought he should. Let's go ahead and get the context. John chapter 11, verse 1 says, A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. Now you jump down to verse 3. It says, So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. So let's just stop for a second pull out here. Here's what we know. Jesus has a friend named Lazarus who lives in Bethany, which is a suburb of Jerusalem, capital city of um, Israel. And he gets word, Lazarus, your good friend, is sick. And so they're trying, obviously, to say, hint, hint, you need to come do something about this. Just stepping back for a second from that, does it seem a little weird to you that Jesus would have a best friend? We've got this image of Jesus, like that he hovered about this far off the ground everywhere he went, and he never really sweat, and he never really did anything, well, he didn't do anything bad, but that he never had any bad experiences. He was just kind of, a, kind of floating through life. Jesus was God, but he was also a, a human being, a real person, which means he had a mom that he loved. He had an adopted father. He had brothers. He had sisters. He had cousins. He had nieces and nephews. He went to parties. He had birthdays. He went and hung out with people. He enjoyed eating and drinking with people. He went to weddings. He had friends. He had best friends. He had people he got along with really well. Lazarus is one of them. The John, the guy who wrote this gospel reading, that was Jesus' absolute best friend in the whole world. Jesus loved this guy. So don't just think of Jesus as kind of floating through life. He's a real human being. He had real friends that he cared about, people who counted on him and people that he loved. And Lazarus is one of these guys, and Lazarus is dying. So they sent word to him, and the expectation is, obviously, you're going to come do something about this because your friend's sick. Let's go on down to verse 17 and see what happens. So on his arrival, Jesus went there where Lazarus was. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the grave four days. He's already died. Now Bethany, where Lazarus lives, was like two miles from Jerusalem. And so many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. She's like, no, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who came into the world. After she said this, she went back and she called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly. She went to him. Now, Jesus hadn't yet entered the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met him. So when the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him? 
But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Now let's stop there. Do you see the disappointment and disillusionment marbled all through this account? I mean, look at what Martha said, verse 21. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary said in verse 32, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Verse 37, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this guy from dying? And all of this adds up to one thing. Jesus, you say you're his friend, but you didn't care enough to get here on time to do something about this before he died. Because if you really cared about your best friend Lazarus, you would have done something. You would have got here. You would have helped him. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. You don't want to admit it because it feels like unspiritual to say you're disappointed with God or that you know, maybe God didn't do something that he should have and you're afraid you'll get struck dead if you say it out loud. But this is a very real emotion that people feel. Like, I was really needing God and he wasn't there for me. And that's the stepping off point for a lot of people to just kind of walk away from faith and just to say, if that's the way God is, I'm done. Or, or apparently he doesn't exist because he just didn't show up. And you know, here's the thing that's really ironic about this. They were kind of right in that they said, you could have got here sooner and if you'd been here, you would have stopped him from dying. That's absolutely true. Not only had Jesus been there, could he and would he have stopped Lazarus from dying? Jesus could have got there quicker than he did. Let's go back earlier in the text. And before you do, I just want to go ahead and say this and you can write this down if you're taking notes in your bulletin. Let's just go ahead and acknowledge it. There are times when God will allow you to go through difficult times that he could have prevented. Look, I'm still alive. I haven't been struck dead. There are times when God will allow you to go through a difficult time that he could have stopped. And we're going to time shift here. We're going to go back and look at this because Jesus could have done something here. Verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, what does the Bible say? Well, we don't even have it up there. I'll just go ahead and tell you. Mine says, he hurried to get there as fast as he could. Is that what your Bible says? My Bible says he stayed where he was two more days. You're like, wait, that must be a mistranslation from the Greek. <laughs> the original language the Bible is written in, in English because there's no way that Jesus would hear his good friend is sick and stay two days. Like, wh- wh- what was he doing? Do you have, like, tickets to the show? Why would you wait when your friend is dying? And you might even be thinking, ha, I knew that God doesn't care, and here's the proof right here. Let's just go ahead and through the, go through the logic of how we think about this. Our thinking is, if God cares about me, he wouldn't let me go through this. That's the first, and that's the mistake we make, but that's what we think. If God cares about me, he will not let me go through a difficult time. But I am going through this, whatever this is. Therefore, God obviously does not care about me. And the mistake, as I'm pointing out here, is in the first line. Because you go back and you look at verse 5 and verse 6. It says, Jesus loved Martha. He loved her sister. He loved Lazarus. So, when he heard. Maybe we should stop and think about why that word so is there. He loves them, so he waits two days. Those two things don't seem to go together, do they? Let's try to maybe think about why that might be that Jesus loves them and so he waits instead of going there to help them. You might want to jot this down too, just a thought. This is a very powerful thought, actually. Love always has the best interest of the person who is loved. When you love someone, you always act in the best interest of that person. You can't say that about everything else. Does desire always act in the best interest of the person who is desired? 
No. Does passion always act in the best interest of the person that you're passionate about? No. Does love always act in the best interest of the person you love? Yes. So let's try to figure out why, if Jesus loves them, that he waits. Love always acts in the best interest of the other person, even if it costs me, myself. So let's figure this out. What could possibly be better for Lazarus than healing him before he died? Let's find out. Let's listen to Jesus. He actually says why he delays. Verse 4, when Jesus heard this, that Lazarus was dying, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No. It's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So get the timeline. Jesus hears, your friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. This will result in God's glory. He waits two days, and then they go, and now Lazarus has been dead four days. You go down to verse 14. Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. Here's something else you've got to keep in mind. If Jesus allows you to suffer, the outcome at the end will be better than if you had not suffered. I'm giving you some hard things to think about, and you may not even agree with me, and that's okay. I would just ask you to think about this. But something that I have become absolutely convinced, and I've experienced this, and I can point you to so many other people who have lived decades with Jesus, and they'll tell you, this is hard, but this is true. If Jesus allows you to suffer, it's because there's something on the other end of that suffering that will be better for you than if he had spared you the suffering. Let's look back here and see what good came of Jesus waiting until Lazarus had died before he went there. Go down to verse 38, chapter 11. So, just in, we're back in the present time now of this. Jesus is weeping about his friend Lazarus. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, Jesus said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, she said, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said, didn't I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and then Jesus looked up and he said, you know, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you would always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And then the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off those grave clothes, let him go. Let me ask you a question. What good came of Lazarus dying? Lazarus got to be one of the handful of people who literally were dead and were raised back to life. Do you think Lazarus was ever from that point forward scared to die, if he was before? Do you think Mary and Martha were scared to die? Do you think any of the dozens or hundreds of people who were there at that time and saw that happen were scared to die? Like everything that Jesus just said about I'm the resurrection and life just got underlined and bolded and all caps. Oh my gosh, if he can raise a guy from the dead who's been dead four days, everything he said about everybody coming to life at the last day in a real physical body, in a real physical place, it's true. How many hundreds and thousands of people in the coming days put their trust in Jesus because of Lazarus, the guy who was dead, and now he's alive again? Well, let's just go back and look. You look in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 9, it says this, 
And this is a little time in the future. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there in Bethany. came, not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. This was huge. Nobody has ever heard of somebody who's been dead four days coming back to life. How many people, was that the last piece of the puzzle to go, oh my gosh, Jesus is not just a really good teacher. He's not just a great guy who says nice things and does great miracles. This is actually the son of God. I believe, I'm putting, my, I'm putting all my trust on him. I have never found anything like this guy before. And if it's wrong, then there's nothing else that's more true than this. How many people for the last 2,000 years have put their faith in Jesus because of this? How many, over the last 2,000 years, how many people have found comfort from this as they've said goodbye to their loved ones? If Jesus allows you to suffer, it's because there's something better on the other side of it. And he loves you. And love always does what's best for the person who's loved. Please hear me on this. I'm not saying that suffering is good. I'm, I'm not. It is better that you and I not suffer. Suffering is dangerous because suffering gives you an opportunity to walk away from God. And believe me, if God had his way, you and I would never suffer. In a perfect world, that's... How many, how many times has God spared us from things that we don't even know about? That God says, I'm not going to let this happen. And you can't even say thank you to God because you didn't even know that he blocked it. And he protected you. There's so many things that God spares us from. But when he does allow something to come into your life, it's for your own good. And will you... This morning, will you say, God, I trust you? Will you, in your heart, say, I don't understand this, but I trust you. I believe that you have something good in mind for me, and I know that with your help, I'm going to get through this. Are you with me? You've heard of Olympic gold medalist Scott Hamilton, right? Well, he's facing another health scare. I don't know if you knew this or not. Scott Hamilton's had cancer several times. Back in 2016, Scott received yet another brain tumor diagnosis. And this is going to be his third time dealing with cancer. And and you may or may not know all that about him. Here's something else you may or may not know. Scott Hamilton is a committed follower of Jesus Christ. He's a Christian. And uh, he recorded a little bit of his testimony. He was talking to People Magazine. I've got the video clip here. I want you to just listen to Scott in his own words. I, I didn't have any symptoms. I just went in for my normal checkup. And they found the beginnings of uh, the brain tumor coming back. I have a, a unique hobby of collecting life-threatening illness. You know, I, I survived cancer in 97. Seven years later, I was diagnosed with a pituitary brain tumor. First thing is, wait, okay, that's not fair. All right, I've had cancer. I get a pass for a while. But then, you know, um, when I told my wife the first thing she did, without even, without even a beat of emotion or anything else, she just grabbed both my hands and she started to pray. And it was powerful. I mean, it, it, it changed everything for me because I realized, you know, where you go when you're truly up against it. Uh, ironically, I was born with that brain tumor, but for those years that I skated, there, I was not symptomatic at all. And then it came back six years later in 2010. And that time they did surgery. And now it's six years later. And it decided that it wanted an um, encore. I learned as a parent that if your kid falls down, you go, are you okay? And then they go, I don't know. I'm freaking out. You, you kind of set the stage, right? So when this one came back, my 12-year-old son, my oldest biological son, he came to me and he said, is your brain tumor back? And I go, yeah, <laughs> it is. And, you know, here we go again. 
So I set the tone. Because anytime, you know, cancer is a tough thing and it's really just devastated a lot of families. I lost my mother to cancer and it changed my life forever. Um, but we choose, I choose to truly, in everything that we do, we celebrate life. So let me just ask you, where do you go when you're up against it? Even if you would say this morning, I've been so disappointed by God so many times, where else are you going to go? To someone who loves you like that? I want you to think about the story you've been telling yourself about God. And there's some gaps and you don't understand and your mind has filled in the gaps and maybe you've given God the wrong motives and you've, you've not maybe had the right read on what God's doing in your life. This morning I'm asking you, would you maybe rethink some of the things that you don't understand and maybe give God the benefit of the doubt and to say, God, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you have my best interest at heart. There's a guy named Paul. He wrote a good chunk of the Bible. He's, uh, we call him the Apostle Paul. He's a Christian. And he had a really tough experience. He wrote some about to, a, to some of his friends. This is in the Bible in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1. It says, My friends, I want you to know what a hard time we had in Asia. Our sufferings were so horrible, so unbearable. Death seemed certain. In fact, we felt sure we were going to die. But this made us stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting God who raises the dead to life. Literally, not figuratively. God literally raises the dead to life. If you're struggling today, would you do what Paul said he did? Stop trusting yourself. Stop trusting your own understanding and your own uh, interpretation, your own filter of what's going on in your life and start trusting God. And maybe you've walked away from God and maybe today is the day where you start taking some steps back to him and realize that he's not going to point his finger in your face like, who are you? What are you doing? Now you want to come back? He's waiting for you. Or maybe, maybe you need to go a step further and you need to pull somebody aside and share your struggle with them. Write it on the Connect card. Find somebody after the service and just say, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Can I pray with you? There's people here who would love to do that. I get, I get prayed for every Sunday. I need it. So, like, there you go. It's not a bad thing to admit to somebody, I want to talk to somebody and pray about this. Uh, maybe for you, Jesus has just been a guy in a book. He's just been a painting somewhere. And you need to encounter the real Jesus and you need to think about what it would be like to commit your life to him. Can I invite you to stand up and I want to pray for you. And will you have just a very simple conversation with God and take the first steps toward trusting him or recommitting to trust him? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this uh, true thing that happened. And I thank you that through what happened in Lazarus' life, we can just extrapolate from that and think, wow, this is what God can and will do in my life. And I pray for you to make that very real to us, that we would, we would very much know that you are here and that you are for us. This is why we gather every week. We believe that when we do, that you are here and that the, your spirit is working in our hearts and talking to us. So would you help us to recognize what it is you're saying to us, recognize it's you, and to know what it is the next thing that we should do? I do ask for you to give a, uh, like a comfort and an encouragement to people who are struggling that we, we couldn't even explain it if we tried because it was truly from you. And I pray for you to move in our hearts that we would turn things over to you that we're carrying that we really don't need to carry. I pray that you would nudge us so that we will confess to you the, the things that we're doing that are wrong and ask for your forgiveness. I pray that most of all, we will just be absolutely convinced that you love us and that you never stop loving us and that you are working for our good and that we will trust you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.